Good evening. Thank you for your warm welcome. We just enjoy sitting around the table with you and sharing about life and ministry. I, I almost forgot I had a session tonight. <laughs> we were enjoying our time so much with the folks at dinner. We're going to look at a door for ministry this morning or this evening, and I want you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 4. In the, in the world of business and in the world of engineering, we often try to achieve the best possible conditions in order to achieve the best possible results. It just makes sense. And yes, we should be doing things as well as possible in our camps. And I'm thankful for organizations like 3CA in providing what they do. Because quite honestly, without being members, Gabby and I get to cheat. And we get to be here to be enriched in that way. And we need to do that. The fact of the matter is, though, that we can't always do that. As we heard this evening, a fire happens. Somebody gets terminally ill. Staff leave. Weather hits, and I've begun to realize that sometimes we're working as imperfect people in an imperfect situation, and we need to be like the little boy with the five loaves and the two fish who just came and offered that to the Lord. It wasn't perfect, but Jesus said, thank you. Christian ministry is not our efforts to try and create heaven on earth. Christian ministry is laying down my imperfect life to his victorious life which dwells within me so that he can do the eternal thing, sometimes through very, very meager means, but he's pleased to do that. And so I want to look at prayer tonight, and in particular, this prayer that Paul prayed in Colossians chapter 4 which he also wrote from prison. He said, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been in prison that I make it, make it clear in the way that I ought to speak. If you read the gospel accounts, you'll know that it says on three different occasions that Jesus had three things that he was accustomed to doing, three habits, if you will. It says, number one, that it was his habit to go to the synagogue. People didn't have their own private copy of the scriptures at that time, so the public reading of scripture was very important. And in a Jewish synagogue, they had something like a Bible reading plan. And people came week by week, and they heard the scriptures read. And it says that Jesus had the habit or was accustomed to going to the synagogue. The second thing that it says Jesus was accustomed to doing was that he was accustomed to teaching people. And he often combined that with other ministry, of course. And he actually, those passages in my Bible and yours, if you have one like me, the words of Christ are recorded in red. A lot of that red ink happened while he was being interrupted. But he said it was, in, it was his custom to teach. 
And then the third thing it says that Jesus was accustomed to doing is that he was accustomed to getting away to pray. And if Jesus needed that time with his heavenly father, how much more do I? It's also interesting that the disciples said, Jesus, teach us not how to preach, not how to lead, not how to fundraise, not how to organize. But they said, Lord, please teach us to pray. Because they'd seen Jesus enough and watched him pray and then witness the Father answer his prayers, and they said, we want to have that type of life with the Father as well. So Jesus, teach us to pray. It's the only time that the disciples said, teach us to do something. Very instructive. And Paul says here, be devoted to prayer. And this shows me, because Paul was in prison when he wrote this, that a life of limited opportunity doesn't mean that I have limited influence. Paul, I would suggest to us, learned the ministry of prayer while he was in prison. In fact, if you go through the writings of Paul, you'll come to realize that he wrote six prayers in his epistles. Six prayers. Five of them were written when he was in prison. Five of those prayers were written while he was in prison. And that tells me something about the priorities of Paul and, and the things that he was doing in, in prison, one of them being he was engaging in the ministry of prayer. Now, I'm not the, the brightest bulb on the Christmas tree, but it just makes sense to me that if the Spirit of God moved Paul to record his prayers in Scripture, and we have them the, in the authoritative Word of God, they reflect God's heart for his people. And so when I don't know what to pray, I go, one of the things that I do is I go to the prayers of Paul. And I don't just study them, although that's very instructive too, because the things that he prayed while he was in prison are not some of the things that I'd be praying when I was in prison. They're actually very different. But I actually use them to pray myself. I have a leather case I carry my Bible in. There are several things in there, including the prayers of Paul. And I just entitled the document, Praying for God's People According to God's Will. Because if they're in the scriptures, they certainly reflect God's will for his people. And we can pray the prayers of Paul with confidence. The scriptures say in Romans chapter 8 and verses 26 and 27, we don't know how to pray, but the Spirit helps us in our weakness and teaches us how to pray. And one of the things that he does is not just lay those things on our hearts, but he laid them on Paul's heart and then communicated to them to us in the scriptures so I can pray these things with the confidence of 1 John chapter 5 and verse 14. If we pray anything according to his will, he hears us. And those prayers are certainly according to God's will. And so I like to use them as a guide for prayer. And if you think about it, the ministry of prayer um, does not, ha not have attached to it some of the other 
if you will, baggage that other forms of ministry does. I don't have to raise funds to pray. I don't have to hire staff to pray. Uh, I, I don't need a particularly good piece of property or building to pray. There are a lot of things about prayer and the ministry of prayer that makes it so, so easy to engage in compared to other forms of ministry. I want to learn the ministry of prayer. I've come with a bunch of statements this evening just to remind us of the importance of prayer. First of all, we don't give up on prayer because we don't give up on Jesus. And to give up on Jesus is to give up on prayer. And prayer, as I indicated this morning, is relating all of our needs to God. Prayer considers my need his problem. And he is, he is uh, waiting to take that load. He's waiting to bear that. And he is waiting for me to share that with him. To throw my sack full of worries at his feet and then leaving it there. He longs for me to do that. To engage with him in prayer. Brought two quotes by two old saints. First one was said by a man named Samuel Chadwick. He said this. I felt that it was worth quoting this evening. He said, Satan dreads nothing but prayer. His one concern is to keep saints from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. Satan trembles when he sees the weakest Christian on his knees. And we all know the fast pace of camp life. We all know that. We all know the, the multi-layered uh, responsibilities that we carry when we execute our ministries in the spirit of God. And yet I know that I can do that and leave out prayer. I'm ashamed of that, but that's the case with Peter Reed. I'm, sp I'm spending a lot of time optimizing my program and dealing with all the things that we have to deal with in executing our ministries. And then I remember this, Satan loves that. Just busy and running on empty at the same time. A man by the name of E.M. Bounds wrote a book called Power in Prayer. He put it this way. He said, what the church needs today is not more machinery or better or not new organizations or more novel methods, but we need men and women whom the Holy Ghost can use. Men and women of prayer. Men and women mighty in prayer. The Holy Ghost does not flow through methods, but through men. He does not come upon a machinery, but on men and women. He does not anoint plans, but men and women of prayer. In northern Bavaria, in the state next to ours, we live in Baden-Württemberg. In northern Bavaria, near a, a city called Hof, At the beginning of the 20th century, 
in a village of about 400 people, there were a small group of Christians that began to pray for revival. One of them was a man named Hans Hegel, and Hans Hegel was the village baker. He was a very simple, but very godly man. And after World War II ended, they got a hold of some American soldiers that were a part of the occupation allied forces in their area, and they rented a pickup truck, they put a brass band in the back of it, and they went around their area inviting people to a, to a Pentecost conference. Pentecost being 50 days after the Passover, of course. And they invited them to come and, and, and listen to God's word. When Hans Hegel was an old man, he brought his son, who was a pastor, who did Gabi's and my wedding, out to a forest where he prayed. And he brought him to a rock, a large rock, about as high as this screen in back of me. And he says, this is where I pray, and I want you, after I go to be with the Lord, to pray. That conference today is held outside, and between 10 and 15,000 people come to hear the word of God preached every year. But what we miss sometimes is that it was rooted in prayer. Bodenzioff, and I'm assuming some of the works represented here are rooted in prayer. And, and I have become aware of the fact that I have moved away in our ministry from one of our core values, the ministry of prayer. And so my predecessor, the, the, the man who led Bodenzio before I did, who is a dear brother in the Lord, he knew that this needed to change. So at 8 o'clock every morning, we meet as a staff every day except Sunday to pray for a half hour. That's included in our work time because I did not want to get into the discussion, is this supposed to be voluntarily or does this count as work? Praise God, our staff wouldn't begin asking those questions because that's the quality that they are. But for future generations, I wanted to line this up and I told the board, this is work time. If I were honest with you, it cost me between ah, six and 8,000 euros to pay our staff to come and pray for a half hour. And so instead of enduring that awkward silence and waiting for people to pray, we stand up in groups of three and we just pray all at the same time. And we're trying to go back to our, our core values. And this year, I got our members, the members of our ministry association together, and I said, let's have a day of prayer. So we're returning back to that. And I'll be honest with you, when, when you have property and buildings and a good program and everything's going pretty slick, I realized we could drift away from some of our core values. Brought some pictures tonight. This farmhouse was owned by a godly family in southern Germany, the Kast family. And at the beginning of the 20th century, the farmer's wife used to look out her window and she used to pray, Lord, use this apple orchard for your glory. And they prayed 
that God would begin to do a work in this area of Germany. We're largely Catholic in our region. Each region in Germany really kind of uh, went the way of whatever ruling king or prince was in that area, and that was our heritage. And so they got permission to hold Bible studies in that farmhouse. Eventually, that led the area. And this woman used to pray, God, use our property. In the late 1950s, early 1960s, God brought three men together. The local pastor who knew Jesus, Fritz Müller, men named Hans Steinacker who went to that castle that I showed this morning as a part of that program that the British government offered to German young people. And then a young man named Charlie Moore who had attended Columbia Bible College in South Carolina, had heard Major Thomas, came into contact with torchbearers, and the three of them got together and they say, wouldn't it be wonderful to have something like that castle that we saw in Northern England on the Bodensee? Uh, we don't have that kind of property on the Bodensee to have a property that big. But they started sharing Christ and they were faithful in the small things. And they rented any property they could to preach the gospel to young people. And sometimes Gabby and I run across them even to this day. Those three went to the Kast family. The, the farmer's wife who used to pray that, I believe that she was still living at that time. And they said, can we lease your property? And they gave them a 50-year lease. And they began to have the first conferences for Bodenseehof in that building. That woman's, the, the farmer's uh, wife's daughter was the last member of that family who was living. And we went to her in 2011, said the 50-year lease is coming up in four years. We want to do some major renovations. Are you going to renew the lease? And this single woman who had cared for his, her parents all her life, never got married, she said, oh, don't worry about that. I've long since written over that property to Bodensiof. So you just keep on doing what you're doing. So I brought a, two pictures of the entrance today. And it's not a castle. But God honored those prayers. God listened to those women. And they never lived to see the day to see not just that building, because it's not about the building. It's about the thousand middle school age kids who come as part of their confirmation class in the Lutheran Church in Germany, and it is a wide open door to share the gospel with them. They never lived to see the day when 110 students from 12 to 13 different countries from around the world come and attend a Bible school, which is like going to a spiritual emphasis week at Moody Bible Institute for 24 weeks in a row. They never lived to see that, but they prayed. They prayed. Be devoted to prayer. And I'm just saying this because as one of your peers, I've come to realize that I can, some, can sometimes slip in the midst of caring for all of that from our core values. You see, the chief end of prayer is not to get answers, but to get to know God. We don't just get answers to prayer, we get to know God himself. 
Helen Rosevere was a, a, a woman who grew up in Northern Ireland. She trained to be a, gospel, uh, a doctor, and she went with the mission WEC, which was started by C.T. Studd in Western Africa. In particular, she went to Belgian Congo. And she, as a doctor, helped build a hospital in that area of Africa. And then civil war broke out. And one day a jeep of soldiers drew, drove into the compound and took her captive and a few others, raped her, and, and then just pillaged the, the, the property. She went back to Ireland to recover from that experience. Weck, the mission, came back and said, they destroyed the hospital, would you go back and rebuild it? She said, yes, I will. She went back and rebuilt it, and then the nationals came to her and said, you can go home now because we don't need your help anymore. And that was God's way of sending her on a worldwide ministry to share Christ. She wrote two books. It was an autobiography. One was called Give Me This Mountain, and the second half is called He Gave Us a Valley by Helen Rosevere. And within that biography, she told this story about prayer. She said, one evening I was helping a mother give birth in the maternity ward. And despite our efforts, she died, leaving us with a tiny premature, premature baby and a crying two-year-old girl. It would be hard to keep the baby alive because we had neither electricity nor an incubator, and the nights were often drafty and cool, even though we were on the equator. An assistant fetched our last hot water bottle to keep the baby warm, but soon came back in desperation because it had burst. Okay, I told her, just hold the baby as close to the fire as you can and keep it out of the drafts. The following day, I had a prayer time with the orphans. I told them about the newly born baby, the two-year-old orphan, and the broken hot water bottle. During the prayer time, Ruth, a 10-year-old with the typical brutal directness of African children, prayed, please God, send us a hot water bottle. Tomorrow will be too late, God, because the baby will be dead by then, so please send it this afternoon. I took a deep breath because of the prayer's directness, but then I heard her continue. And while you're at it, God, would you please send a doll for the little girl so that she knows that you really love her? To be honest, I could not believe that God would do that. Oh, yes, God can do everything. I knew that theoretically. It's written in the Bible. But there are limits, aren't there? I hadn't received any packages from home for four years. And if anyone sent a package, why would they send a hot water bottle to tropical Africa? Late in that afternoon, I heard that a car had come. But by the time I arrived at my apartment, it had already left. But there was a large package on the veranda. I could feel the tears welling up inside and I called the orphans so that we could open it together and apart from clothes, bandages, raisins, the parcel contained, I could hardly believe my eyes, a new rubber hot water bottle. I cried. I'd not dared ask God for it, but Ruth had. And she was sitting on the, front, on the front row, and so she ran forward and shouted, if God sent her the hot water bottle, he must have sent the doll too. And she dug to the bottom of that package and pulled out a beautiful, small doll. Her eyes shone, and she had not doubted for a moment. And she looked up and asked, can we go to the little girl and give her the doll 
so that she knows that Jesus loves her. That package had been on the way for five months, sent by a Sunday school class. And the teacher had been so obedient to God that she even sent a hot water bottle to the equator. And one of the girls had given a doll five months before a 10-year-old African girl would pray, God, we need it this afternoon. The words of the Bible are true. God said in Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 24, before they call, I'll answer. Students come to me after I read that, and then they ask this theoretical, theological question, well, why should we even pray if God knows beforehand? If it says in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 8, if our Heavenly Father knows what we need before we ask Him, why pray? It's an unfortunate question, because the chief end of prayer is not to get answers, it's to get God Himself. We get to know God through that. And our Heavenly Father just waits for us to engage with Him in prayer. Our first grandchild arrived last June. He's approaching eight months. And both of us look forward to the day when he says, Oma, Opa. We have a bunch of other kids at our center because they're just, they're, they're just really increasing the families. <laughs> and one of their names is Zippy. Her name is Zephora, actually. We call her Zippy. It's incredible what little kids can get you to do. And as a grown man, I got on my knees and I'm trying to talk to Zippy. I don't know, she was two. And all of a sudden she said, Peter. And like I jumped up and I said, did you guys hear that? I'm not even the father. And she said my name. I have a funny feeling that our heavenly father feels the same way when his children speak to him. And he says, did you hear that? Peter was actually talking to me. I love that. Be devoted to prayer. We have set times in our ministry where we pray, but prayer can't stay at that point. It needs to go further. And so I brought on the overhead tonight just a very simple thing that we need to learn how to do. Carry on an unheard conversation with God. I was reading in, in Nehemiah one day, and I, I, I read this passage. It's funny how you read through the Bible, and you read it a second or third time, and you're surprised that you never saw it before. But it says in Nehemiah chapter 2, in verses 1 to 7, Nehemiah comes before the king, and, and it, he was the cupbearer, and he says in verse 1, I had not been sad in his presence, so the king said to me, why is your face sad though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. And then I was very much afraid, and I said to the king, let the the king lived forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city of the place of my father's tombs lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? And then the king said to me, what would you request? And then he said, it says this in verse 4, so I prayed to the God of heaven. 
And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to, Ju- to Judah, the city of my fathers, that I may re- rebuild it. And then the king said to me, with the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be, and when will you return, so it pleased the king to send me? And I gave him a definite time. There are seven times in Nehemiah where that, that kind of phrase comes uh, on the pages of Scripture. So I prayed to the, to, to the God of heaven in the middle of doing something else. So yes, we have to, need to have those set times of prayer, but we need to learn how to carry a conversation with God throughout the day. And I've realized that I can sit in a staff meeting and pray. I can write emails and pray. For heaven's sakes, I can drive and pray. Who said you have to close your eyes and fold your hands? I'd be dead by now. (laughs) Pray. Gabby and I are usually up shortly after 6. We're downstairs in our living room. We have our quiet time together and pray. Every day we're at Bodensdale. And then we go over for staff prayers. That's kind of our rhythm. If Gabby called me at 10 a.m. after we'd done that for the first hour of the day and she said, Shots, can I talk to you? And I said, well, listen, I was there from 7 to 8, but I'll see you tomorrow. Ah, oh, that wouldn't really sit well with my wife. She wants to talk all day. <laughs> Why do you do that with Jesus? We relegate him to an appointment and then disengage? Are you kidding me? I've realized that I can stand in front of a group of people and preach the word of God and be praying for them in my spirit at the same time. We need to cultivate a conversation with Jesus throughout the day. Paul said in Ephesians 6, 18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. Peter said, 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be of sound judgment and of sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. And then Paul says, please pray for me. You know, it's not a sign of weakness to ask somebody to pray for you. It's a sign of maturity. Because you're reckoning with the unseen God and our Heavenly Father. And he, in this passage, asks this church to pray for him. While we were here this weekend or this week, there were a thousand people in Germany praying for us because we send out a prayer letter with a request every day for the ministry of Bodensdorf, and a thousand people get that letter, and they were praying for us. So we're just trying to figure out how can we saturate our work in prayer and appeal to the God of heaven and appeal to the Lord of lords and the King of kings and the one who indwells us by his spirit And be like the disciples who saw Jesus pray and God answer prayer and say, Lord Jesus, please teach us how to do that. Paul asks for prayer. And this is my last point. He says in verse 5, 
Verse four, he says, pray for me that I may make the gospel clear in the way that I ought to speak it. And then he says, conduct yourself with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. That wouldn't have been my request. My request would have been, please pray that God would get me out of prison. But he knew that what God did not prevent, he permitted. And he was there and he was put and that was God's place of ministry for him. And so he said, please pray that I would make the gospel clear in the way that I might make it clear while I am a prisoner. If you go to Acts 28 and look in verse 16, it says that Paul was allowed to stay in private quarters with a guard who accompanied him. And that's where we really leave him at the end of the book of Acts, under house arrest in Rome. And then also from prison to the Philippian church, he says to them, now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. The Praetorian Guard was the Green Beret of Roman soldiers. A Roman soldier committed himself to 25 years of service. That's why they were so good. But the Green Beret, or excuse me, the Praetorian Guard, they had sworn their allegiance to Caesar to protect him. And these guards, whoever they were, were guarding Paul while he was under house arrest. And then he says things in his epistles like, remember my chains. Can you imagine being chained on to the apostle Paul as a guard for your shift? They, they couldn't even run away. And they got an earful of the gospel being with the apostle Paul. And he says something very, very instructive at the end of his letter to the Philippians chapter four and verse 22. He says, all those here greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Excuse me for saying this, but I think there was a chain reaction between Paul and those guards, the highest office of the land. The master does not waste his, his servant's time. And some of us here are in prison. We're facing health issues. We have family members who are facing health issues. We've got limitations placed upon our lives right now that we would never have chosen. We cannot exercise the gift in which we would be in our sweet spot. We went to this camp and this ministry to do a certain thing and now we can't. We're in prison. And we're put for a reason. And Paul says, make the most of the opportunity. Make the most of the opportunity. Don't necessarily look for new ones. Make the most of the opportunity right under your nose. And at a fault, I am busy planning 2026, and I'm sometimes so busy with that, I'm missing things under my nose. 
And you know, we have people from all over the world coming to Bodenseehof, and yet, what about the people on our street? Make the most of the opportunity. And it just seems to me that the Savior made the most of the opportunity, and if he lives in me by his spirit and my life is yielded to him, I'll be available for these opportunities. Most people, it's just logical. For whatever reason, a lack of health has been my prison and it's also been an opportunity. So two times I've gone to a lung clinic in Davos, Switzerland. That's a nice place to go to a lung clinic because of asthma and respiratory problems that I have. And one time in 2016, I went there and you're assigned seated. You have assigned seats in the dining hall. I was there for five weeks. And you either sit across the person at your assigned seat and just shut up, or you begin engage in conversation. So I just said, hi, I'm Peter. Here for your lungs, yep. Uh, where are you from, uh, United States? Uh, well, what are you doing here? Well, I live in Germany. What do you do there? Da, 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 da. And this year, I sat across a man who was a very successful businessman. He was there as a private patient, paid his own way. And I just talked about my ministry and hence my life with the Lord. I didn't bring my Ryrie study Bible or anything like that. I just spoke about my life in the Lord. Not really even intending to. I didn't consider him my object of evangelism. I was just sharing life with him. Day after day. Three meals a day. At the end of his time, I think he left a week earlier than I did. He said, listen, this has been a great time visiting with you. Can I take you out to coffee? I said, that would be delightful. Let's do that. Said goodbye never saw him again. It was sometime in the year following that I got a phone call from a pastor in the Black Forest about two or three hours away from where Gabby and I live, Pastor Muller. And he said, you don't know me, I know Bodenseov, but there was somebody in my parish that got to know you in Davos. And after he returned from that clinic, he came barging into my office one day and said, I need Jesus. <laughs> and this pastor knew Jesus, and he was pleased to tell him. And he said, I'm calling you because a few days ago, somebody walked into his place of business and found him dead on the floor of a heart attack. And I've been asked to do the funeral and I'd just like you to record on a document the content of your conversations at Davos because I'd like to tell people what happened to this man. I brought his picture this, morning, this evening. Hans Peter was his name. It was delightful. 
when you're sent, you're put, even in your limitations, whatever they might be. Take advantage of the opportunity because you never know. Stuart and Jill Briscoe became friends of mine and Gabby's. They were dear sources of, of counsel. Stuart went to be with the Lord in August. And uh, Jill said something in, just in passing. She said, you know, the Lord said the workers are few. So I'm assuming that he wants to use me if the workers are few. And I thought, that's a good perspective. If there are so few workers, we all know what that's like in our staff. You're going to load them up with extra work. The workers are few. So I think the Lord of the harvest wants to use us, even in our prison, even with people like Hans Peter. So let's pause and have a word of prayer tonight and just come quietly before the Lord and speak to him. And then I'll close with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you that it says in the Psalms that you have inclined your ear to us and that you're waiting and listening. Lord, we would echo the prayer of the disciples and say, teach us to pray. Teach us to carry an unheard conversation with you in which we appeal to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to do things that are out of our control and would otherwise be impossible, but they're right before your eyes. Lead us back to those very simple things of appealing to you, even scared to death, but appealing to you, who loves to answer prayer. And we would also the echo, echo the prayer of Isaiah who said, hear my, send me. And even if we don't realize it at the time, even if it wasn't really our intent, we just want to be available so that you as the Lord of the harvest can go and find the one sheep, even if it's in our prison. So thank you, Lord, and you, may your word bear fruit. And may you do the eternal thing for your own name's sake. Amen.